I've met and interviewed lots of really interesting people over the years as a BBC radio presenter and in my capacity as freelance Bristol mum. But there hasn't been one more striking than this or a story that I've been quite so keen to hear or to tell. And that's Yvonne Craig's story or Yvonne Craig Inskip, as she writes using her author's name. The book that she wrote is Things My Mother's Never Told Me and it tells the story of her life growing up in London during the 40s and discovering for the first time that she was brought up by two mothers and that that in itself wasn't normal. Yvonne Craig was the vicar's wife and one of those people that I grew up with as a child, part of the fabric of everyday life. And Tyna, one of the mothers in question, was always a fairy godmother character to me. So to discover much later on in my life that Tyna was one of Yvonne's two mothers was quite something to get my head around. And how Yvonne did that as a child, I don't really know. Yvonne's life has unfolded and she's become a real maverick. She's gone on missions to help stop child poverty. She's campaigned for working women's rights and she's also traced her father. Her story is a really good listen. So we spent one Saturday afternoon talking together and asked how she found it being brought up by two mothers. I think the first few years, about the first five years, were fine. I had two very loving mothers. I loved them. Um, and nobody seemed to have fathers. In those days, it was the wartime. Fathers were away working um, in, in the army. And so it wasn't unusual. But there came a day when I was about five or six and I brought a letter home from school for my parents. And I gave it to one of my mothers. I called one Tyna because she was smaller and the other bigger because she was bigger. And I gave it to Tyna and she she somehow gave me the feeling that there was something wrong. And I began to dislike this word parents. I was quite scared about it. What were parents and why did other people have them and I didn't? Uh, but I felt quite unable to ask who who my mother was and who my father was. So from that young age, you were what, five, and yes. suddenly the word parents stuck out a bit yes and did, was it then that you started to notice that actually you had two mothers yes I did and I knew that other people didn't have two mothers but there was no way I was going to go up to one of them and say are you my real mother partly because if she'd have said yes then it would have meant the other one wasn't and that was horrible and also I couldn't bear the thought that they were telling me lies so the whole area became something that we absolutely couldn't talk about. And it was true uh, uh, about fathers. There was never any mention of the fact that I might possibly have had a father or needed to have a father. I just seemed to have sprung into the world. And was it like the elephant in the room? Did you just ignore it throughout childhood or was it just an acceptance? It was, in my mind, it was the elephant in the room, certainly. And what I've described in the book are three or four occasions when it nearly came to the surface and there was a hint of a mention of an Uncle Ro, that's R-O, and at one point I was told he died and I walked out of the room. I somehow knew that I didn't want to know any more about what, who or what Uncle Ro was. So it, it just was there or in my mind all the time um, until 
I, about nine or ten, I decided I've got a solution. I'm adopted. I was loved by my my lovely parents, ordinary parents. They died in a crash on a plane or a car. I didn't care which, and I hope that they didn't have any pain. But um, they were dead, but they loved me passionately, and that my two mothers had adopted me. And I, that, was hap- I, that made me happy for a few years. And did, was there ever a story that went alongside your t- childhood for the mothers to explain how they came across having a child? No, they, it was never, ever mentioned. Um, the first time that I... The only time in my life when I got real confirmation that one of them was my mother was when I took her to for to a clinic before she was admitted to a to a geriatric hospital and she had to take her clothes off and the specialist pointed to a scar on her, on her belly and said sort of what's this and without saying a word she simply indicated with a hand towards me and looked towards me and we didn't say anything then and afterwards I helped her put her clothes on and we didn't say anything either we we couldn't talk about it, but that that actually talking about it makes me feel quite emotional. And um, that was the only time in my life in which acknowledged that she was my mother. So that was a cesarean scar. Yes, that was the birth. Yes. Uh, your birth. Yes, and it f- looked like a sort of um, chain across her, which chained in a secret. It 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 was it was a very emotional moment. How does that make you feel as a mother yourself now, having given birth to three children? Could you imagine never actually acknowledging that birth? No, I, I can't. Um, I passionately wanted children and, and uh, married the first man who asked me, which 50-odd <laughs> years later is still turning out mm-hmm. well. Um, and so that was very happy. But I, I, mean, I do appreciate that they were living in completely different times and my mother had had an affair with a, a Swiss um, man and... Um, She couldn't talk about it. And so her whole family, because they were a close family, extended family, all believed, at least for a number of years, until I began to look like my mother, they believed I was adopted. So I can't imagine that. But actually, the book I've written isn't about, oh dear, wasn't it bad in the old days when uh, illegitimate children were. It's really about secrecy, which in the family, and which can be very harmful. Um, And it's about more and more children now. And it I'm really upset about this, don't know who their parents are. Something like 20% don't have their father's names on their birth certificates for various reasons. Um, you know, choice, not not always necessity. Um, and um, I think to know who your parents are is a, is a birthright. And I'm not saying that it's got to be the blood parents. I think that um, uh, the link, as long as there is an adult who says, you are my child and who puts the child first, not for five minutes or six months or whatever it is, but for the whole of their lives. That's what I'm really passionate about. You've done an awful lot of work, haven't you? You've been, you've campaigned tirelessly throughout your adult life on that note. And you've done an awful lot, I mean, yourself as a young mother. I mean, tell me about some of those campaigns you were behind. Yes, um, there was a campaign, in, and I was involved in it here in Bristol, Every Child a Wanted Child. And it was a family planning-led thing. We thought, I mean, we really wanted every child to be wanted. Um, And we thought that if people, if women could control their own fertility, and if people, whether they were married or not, whoever they were, could, as and when they needed, 
find contraceptive advice. We thought there would be no more abortions. We thought there'd be no more child cruelty and no more child poverty. I mean, we really did think that mm-hmm. we were bringing in a, a golden age. And it hasn't quite worked yeah. out like that. And this is what, the 80s, the 70s? 70s, yes. That's what's when the, the campaign. And um, I started the Bristol Consumer Group then. And we used to go around with clipboard in one hand and push chair in the other um, to chemists. And I, I've got a, a copy here of the, the report we produced to um, uh, try and encourage them to put contraceptive stuff on the counter. So that I mean, some of them had it hidden away behind, but to and, and generally we wanted to have a man and a woman assistant so that shy people could, you know, go to the right sort of person. And we went round and we had a checklist and we filled in our uh, stuff and we made this. We we produced this report um, as part of the campaign to to get uh, proper advice here. You're quite a maverick, really, Yvonne. I mean, did you feel like you were doing something quite different at that point? Well, yes, and. Um, um, you know, sex wasn't talked about in the same sort of way, and especially there, were, I was a clergy wife, and I went to the um, Labour Party conference uh, as a delegate, and we got a, uh, in, I think 1971, we got a motion passed about all this, and there was a headline in a Scottish newspaper, clergy wife wants sex on the rates, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't quite what I had said, but they, it was felt that this, you know, this was undoing morality if people who weren't married could have sex uh, with safe sex, what is the world coming to? So it was quite revolutionary. To go back to your childhood, I mean, I think whatever happened, there was clearly a very good grounding because you're a very solid woman today and to go on and do the things. My dad actually tells me, and I know he's quoting, that um, uses the analogy that parents are like the bow and children are like the arrow and that the the bow have to stay steady and strong in order to send the arrow forth. Yes. And it sounds, yeah, it sounds to me like your mothers were a very strong bow. Yes, they were. Yes, there's no doubt about that. And my my birth mother uh, died when I was quite young. Um, But my other mother, Tyna, um, lived to her 80s and she was just miraculous. She married when I was 11 and left, which absolutely, I was devastated because... Well, as any child is when one of their parents moves away and chooses somebody else. Um, but we remained in touch. And then when her husband died and she was 60, she came back into our lives as a, a, a fairy godmother, really. She never had any, she never owned anything. And um, she was always poor. And she used to come for three months of the year, six weeks and six weeks, to me and the family. They adored her. And I was a, I was free to be a magistrate and and uh, all all sorts of things and write books, because of this wonderful woman, and and she lives on in many people's memories. In fact, you remember her, don't you? I mean, she was an an old lady. She by the time she came to Bristol, she was quite deaf, and she didn't know anybody apart from us. And her funeral was packed in the village church because she just loved people and made so many friends. You touched on something of my own childhood, which I had to share with you today. And this is this dolly that I had. And I'm looking at her now, and she's quite an old-fashioned dolly with in plastic and blue eyes, the ones that look a little bit scary, to be fair. But she had no clothes. And and um, my childhood memory of Tyna was of walking through Whitchurch, and I can even remember the street and approaching the church, and she had no clothes on, this particular dolly. And Tyna asked me why she had no clothes, and I said, oh, because none fitted. 
And then the next time I saw Tana, she'd crocheted not one, but two outfits. And I still have that this dolly today. And she's wearing a bright, it's almost a mustard yellow dress. And then underneath that, you can see that I, in my childish ways, had put both dresses on her. Is the orange dress, which is more like a pinafore dress. And the thing that I still can't get over, she'd even crocheted this really lovely pair of knickers for, for this dolly. And the level of detail that's gone it's into amazing, it, it is quite with amazing. Down the, with little buttons down the back. And the crochet edging, it's quite quite astonishing. I'm glad you've done this because I'd forgotten how good she was. In her later years here in Bristol, she spent hours and hours and hours making um, squares, crochet squares for refugee blankets. I used to go to jumble sales, um, buy woolies, uh, un- unravel them together. We would do that, and she would do that. And I'd forgotten how very skilled she was actually as a younger person. She made, and she would have made me. I know she made me because I hated them. Mm-hmm. She made me um, uh, little swimming costumes when <laughs> I was small. I knitted them. You can imagine, you know, once in the sea or in the water, and they were as hard as planks. <laughs> but that's what you had in there. It was wartime. That's what you had. To go back to Tyna, I mean, I remember her as. You know, this, like you say, fairy godmother, beautiful old woman, and only knew her as a relative of yours. And so for me, when I discovered as an adult that she had been um, one of two mothers who had brought you up, I almost had to reframe Tyna in my life. It made me think, not differently of her, but I had to kind of reposition her in my mind. You touch on the fact that in actual fact she went off and she married. It brings to light a question. Do you believe that your mothers were romantically involved or do you believe it was entirely platonic? It's very interesting you should ask. It's the first question everybody asks. And I went on the Richard and Judy show once and that was a, a question that, that they asked. The honest, it's a difficult, I can't say yes or no just like that because nobody can. Um, they were living in a time when two women living together was not unusual. It was post First World War million men had been killed. There were lots of spinsters, and so women living together wasn't um, unusual. And they came to get, lived together seven years before I was born, and um, they came together because uh, there was a family problem in Tyna's family, and she had to leave. And um, uh, there'd been a fatal road accident, and she was blamed for something, and it was all horrid. And my other mother took her in, and, and they lived together in her family house. They didn't have a flat together. They lived uh, with my my other mother's family. So that was, wasn't was sort of love at first sight or anything like that. Um, they, were, they were work colleagues. That's how they knew each other. So um, I don't know. Uh, everybody, I think in the 21st century, everybody thinks two women living together must have had a sexual life. They never, they well, I mean, one married a man and, and happily, so they would have been bisexual, and the other one had, I think, more than one affair. So they certainly had sex with men. Um, I, I don't know that the word had never been invented, as it were. Nobody talked about it. Um, I, sus- I, I just don't know, Faye, um, what went on. Um, I would like, I mean, I like to celebrate friendship. I think that we just turn everything into sex nowadays, and friendship is so very, very important. Um, And that, you know, and when one of them went off to get married, um, there was no jealous, I can't remember any rows or jealous bitterness or anything like that. And I was 11 at the time, I think I would have remembered. It was, we were really, very sad, but 
I can't feel that there was any sort of lover's quarrel or anything like that. Is that enough of an answer? <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful answer. It, there's a, a touch of innocence about the whole thing. Mm. Um, it reminds me somehow, isn't it, you know, Morecambe and Wise about the only two men you exactly. can see on television yes. in yes. bed together exactly. and it to be innocent. Yes. And on that note, they did share a bed, didn't they? Yes, yes, they, 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 my, my mothers did. And again, think back, um, I suspect that my mother never, ever slept alone. I mean, families, there were two bedrooms, I think, or three bedrooms in the cottage that she grew up. She would have slept with her sister. Um, and this is, I can't believe this, really, but during the war, we had to have people if, um, uh, billeted with us. And we used to have men, and sometimes men, and sometimes women, including women from Bletchley Park. So two complete strangers who didn't know each other would turn up. We had one spare bedroom. And two complete strangers would sleep mm. in that room. Mm. And, and we never had a man and a woman sleeping together. That wouldn't have been right. Mm. But we did have, and I can remember some of them, and we've got lovely sort of tributes from them because my mothers were very kind, nice people. Um, okay, well, can you, you can't imagine that happening nowadays. But two strangers slept together um, again and again. And for you, it doesn't matter then that your mothers were your mothers and, and that's all that is the most important thing. Yes. But did it change your view of the world? How did it come when you started to form your own relationships with men? I, I just feel I've been very lucky because I knew absolutely nothing about men. I went to an uh, all-girls convent school and I went up to Cambridge and when I was 19, um, I met... Uh, somebody was training to be a clergyman and he asked me to marry him if I would wait seven years. Yeah. And <laughs> we did a bit of negotiation about that. But I I met the first man. Partly that was a religious belief. I was, I was, I have been a Christian of sorts, as it were, not a very good one all my life. And the feeling that, that um, I had a sort of trust. And um, so I, I, I said yes. Um, but Looking back, I was a total innocent. I mean, I knew nothing about men or... Uh, I'd read anthropology, so I knew a lot about sex in uh, generally, you know, worldwide, as it were, but as for practical experience, <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't got a clue. Um, so I feel that I've, I lost out great... I do feel that for a child to grow up with... Um, both a man and a woman and learning how because you know these two halves of the world as it were you know live together fight together laugh together and and sort things out is a tremendously important lesson um, and I know it can't always happen but I do think that having whether they're married or not or whether they're the blood parents or whether it doesn't matter but to have a man and a woman bringing you up is an advantage that's all I can say Tyna and Bigger, so these are your two mothers who brought you up, and although there was no acknowledgement until much, much later in life that Bigger was actually your birth mother, there was a point in your life, wasn't there, when you suddenly realised, oh my goodness, I look just like yes. her. Yes. Can you remember? Absolutely. It was speech day at school, I was up on the platform, we were supposed to sing, and I can't sing a note, but never mind, um... I looked down and my, my mother was there and one of my mothers, the, the one that hadn't married, um, and um, <clears throat> I suddenly could see myself as if looking in a mirror. 
And it was an absolute shockwave. And I just felt like melting or collapsing. And I just felt, this can't be. And here am I, and everybody else can see it. And they will know that my mother had, was, you know, is a bit of a trollop and, and uh, you know, she hadn't followed the right path and, and, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, so, yes, I, I was quite clear about that. But there is no way that I could have gone to her and said, you are my mother, aren't you? Um, I, I just, I didn't, she didn't want to tell me, obviously, or perhaps she did. I just didn't want to know the murky details. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my 50s and both mothers had died when I set off on an exciting journey to find out who my father was. And Richard, my husband, who'd married an only child um, for 50 years, <laughs> that's what I'd been, I discovered that I was um, the sixth child among seven that my father had generated. He had children by uh, four women and two of them he married and two of them he didn't. So that was a very exciting journey. Your father died but before you ever had a chance to meet him, didn't he? Yes, he did. Um, he, in fact, married again um, when I was about three or four and a, a happy marriage, I think, this time and had a, a son. So, um, and then he died, actually, during uh, during the Blitz in London. So um, I had no idea about any of this, of course, but it did mean that we were, there, was, there were seven of us. And um, he just disappeared from everybody's life, in fact. So it was quite difficult. It was very difficult. It took several years to trace, uh, um, to trace him, and I knew, I thought he would be dead by then. And he turned out to be not only Swiss, but his father, Emil Strube, um, was the director and built the Jungfrau Railway. And it is interesting because they're both, they were both brilliant engineers. And when my own daughter, Claire, was 16 or 17, she was brilliant at science and, and so on. She wanted to be an engineer. And the school said, oh, no, you're too clever for, to be an engineer. I mean, this is stupid English views of these things. You know, you've got to do um, theoretical physics or whatever it might be. And so she went up to Cambridge to do that. But I just wonder if she'd known that we'd got a family history of outstanding engineers, whether that she might not. I mean, she's made brilliant choices, but it's an interesting thought. Was he Uncle Ray? Is that the man that you had heard the name of? Yes, yes, he certainly was. Um, and I think, I can't think what other references there were to him. Um, but when my real mother died, her sister, who of course um, knew that I was her child, but again, the, the two sisters had never spoken of it. And my aunt was still bitter about that, that she, she felt it was dreadful. She gave me, my aunt gave me a cache of postcards and a and, and, and few letters and so on initialed, no real name on them and so on. And that has helped me to put together something about their their life and their relationship um, in the 1930s, basically, that was. So I feel that I know something about him. And then I was fortunate because the I did eventually trace a half-sister who actually was not surprised because 10 years earlier the other one had turned up <laughs> Uh, we were very reluctant, um, Richard particularly, to go ahead with tracing my father's family because we thought 
by that time they'd be in their 60s and they, you know, solid citizens. Would they want to know that their father had had an affair that resulted in a child? Um, so, you know, there were all those considerations, but eventually it turned out well. And did it give you the two halves that, you know, you've spoken about that you feel every child needs in their life? To, though you didn't meet your father, you started to learn more about him. Yes, it, it really did. It made, it made an enormous difference. It's difficult to, to explain. I remember standing on the platform of a tube station at Bayswater, and it was near a house where he'd lived, um, you know, 50 years earlier or something, um, and just thinking he must have stood on this platform, and if he did that, he must have been alive. And I just stood there for some minutes, just feeling that he'd could have stood on this actual spot it's it's stupid i know but it actually made something very unreal turn into a a sort of human being just just for a moment you your childhood is amazing yvonne i mean that alone if if you weren't to then go on and achieve the things that you had as an adult would be remarkable but it did inform each one did inform each other yes the how did religion you know, play a part in it because you were brought up by nuns. Yes. You you married a vicar. Yeah. Did did that? Did things sit well with that? Um, well, yes and no. My faith changed enormously. I, I read anthropology at Cambridge, and that sort of turns everything upside down because it looks at comparative religions. But I have certainly stayed with a with with my um, Christian faith, and I think that really. That led. I've campaigned about all sorts of things, to, mostly to do with women and children, and that's a very fundamental belief that everybody is equal in the sight of God, or everybody is equal. And if you start from that premise, you can't really go far wrong. It seems to me that taxation and everything else <laughs> um, follows from it. So um, yes, I was involved in a lot of campaigns, and I got involved in politics, and I became a um, a Labour politician, which is not very pop- was not very popular with the church because I think they were a bit more conservative-minded in those days. Yes, I just really, I think, want to make the world a better place, just make things easier for people in some ways. And you've, you're not someone who's slowed down either in life. I mean, you st- I, and you're such a fascinating woman. I know you write a blog today, and it's all about you know art that you can walk to within is it a mile radius of your home. Yes. Um, I yeah, I love writing, and which is why I've written this book. And art is something which I really encourage people to look at. Um, art by living artists. Start with that because that's really uh, meaty and f- fascinating. Um, so I I um, did a, 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 a few courses on it, and now um, I'm really quite passionate about it. And, and I write uh, daily about art by living artists uh, within walking distance of my flat. Um, for me, it's a sort of huge resource. It's not just... You have to wrestle with things sometimes because they're a bit... Tracy Emin's bed, people know about that. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I don't just think she was a slut. There are people who say that really there's a tradition in this country and in Europe of young women writing about... F- um, exposing their souls, writing diaries and if it's written down we can understand them and I think that was in a sense Tracy Emin's bed was sort of her own bit of diary it was writing about how she felt at that particular moment except she wasn't writing, it was, it was visual so I love being challenged by all that kind of thing 
And for you, was it a challenge writing your book, Things My Mother's Never Told Me, or was it a cathartic experience? I think I started writing 40 years ago, bits and pieces, um, jigsaw. I was... It's difficult to know whether it's cathartic because, it, I mean, it really has been going on for for so long. I knew that at some stage that I had to do it. I was driven to do it. By what? I don't know. Um, it's... Uh, I don't think it's emptied everything out, uh, but it has... I have been trying to make sense of things, and that, that does bring a, an element of release in it. So what was it like living in Bristol in the 60s? You moved here the day that man landed on the moon. Well, I did feel very alone at first because I didn't know anybody and we didn't have any connections. And I started getting involved with things and started up the consumer group. Um, and then I'd been a magistrate very briefly. Um, when, when I was pregnant, actually, with my third child, I was made a magistrate in Scunthorpe in Lincolnshire. And uh, this was transferred... So um, that was extremely interesting. I was a magistrate here for about eight, 18 years. I think Bristol was a great place to come to. Uh, there were lots of energy and allies and um, young women and some men um, who wanted to get things changed. And we founded uh, the, the, the Bristol Consumer Group, which was part of the National Witch Organization, and went round and conducted um, surveys on uh, this well contraception, but... Um, school lavatories and everything you can possibly imagine. It was a great place to be. And you've still got a link here in Bristol, haven't you? And your daughter lives here and it's only a few doors away from where Tyna moved to. Is it important for you to keep that link? Yes, absolutely. Yes, we we just love coming back here. And my husband was um, a, a vicar in Whitchurch for 11 years. And before that, we lived in, uh, in um, Totterdown. Um, and it's where our children grew up and went to school. So it's a it's a very, very special place and we love coming back to it. What would you like your legacy to be, Yvonne? Uh, that, that's a very difficult one. The, what, the one I would have liked is every child a wanted child and that absolutely hasn't worked out. It's, it's gone in all sorts of, of, um, of different di- directions. I, I'd like more of the, the atmosphere that was around then when we had a sort of can-do feeling. We were not working every hour God sends um, a, a lot of women we, we, were, we had a lower standard of living because everybody else did, it wasn't difficult we weren't marvellous or anything like that but we didn't expect all sorts of things that are expected nowadays and so there was much more time for um, volunteering and, and really wanting to change the world um, so I think I was very fortunate living in that, in that time how do you think that being brought up by two mothers made you the person you are today? I think that despite huge disadvantages in having no experience of men, um, which is quite a handicap, let's <laughs> face it, um, it, was, it was inspirational in the sense that um, women could do things. And I went to a school run by women and uh, uh, nuns, as it happened, um, and they were real examples that you 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 know you can get on perfectly well. So I think a, a sort of can do, and not relying on somebody else to do it for you, was a really great um, example. And the other thing is simply friendship between women, which I think is just so um, uh, nourishing. 
um, and particularly, of course, as you get older and women survive longer, then there are all sorts of um, uh, richness ab- about friendship between women. So I think those those things were really very, very positive. Although at the time, um, well, when I was struggling to come to terms with who I was, I was bitterly critical of of the way that that, that I had been brought up in secret and um, how I had been denied a father. Do you think it would have been more helpful for you to have known that your birth history in your childhood? I think so. If it had been told normally, I mean, not with not with bitterness and betrayal or anything like that, which and I never found any trace of that. Um, if it could have been done in a, a comparatively ma- matter of fact way, um, then I think that would have that would have helped. Yes. Do you begrudge your mothers for not telling you? I don't, no, I don't now. I think they were, I can understand the spirit, you know, the the age in which they lived, in which they had to tell lies to everybody, including to their nearest and dearest. And I'm really glad that that's gone. That's wonderful that that, that's uh, finished. On the other hand, they did have the idea of lifelong commitment. And it just, I suppose, living in central London and so on, um, that seems to be a, uh, no, I shouldn't say something rude about London, but mm-hmm. um, this sort of lifelong commitment to children seems to be an optional extra, and I don't think it is. Do you have any living relatives on bigger side of the family who have come to found that you've now you know, found out more about your father? And if so, how did they deal with that? Yes, I'm very grateful because I have got some inskips who were were, um, uh, in in Bedford and I'm still in contact with them. Of course, the older ones say, of course, we all knew, you know, nudge, nudge, we we guessed. But they certainly didn't for for a number of years. Um, And there there was resentment, certainly, about the fact that they were not open and honest about the fact that I was their child. And they had to go through a life with a a great deal of of, um, pretense. But there was a time when I didn't want anything to do with that side of my family. I was a Craig. I got a new name. I'd got a a marriage certificate. I'd got birth certificate for my children. Um, I was legitimate. I was a proper paid-up member of the planet. (laughs) Uh, So I didn't want to know anything about the past at all. And then, of course, there comes a time when you want to go back and really find out what happened and, and to make your peace with whoever's been involved and the decisions they made, recognising the terms, times they were living in. When it comes to your book, um, how do you feel sharing your story with other people? That's been quite difficult to know how how much to do. And at the end, I've got a series of questions and answers. And one of the que- that people have said to me, you know, what would your mothers feel about their secret being released? I think that the, the two of them would be very different. And... Um, one of them would be really quite um, pleased in this pleasant day and age that the the you know the, the story was being uh, acknowledged and so on. Um, I think if you do take a, a lifelong look at at, uh, at what's happened, you have to take into account the feelings of the the other relatives, like my children and my husband, and that's needed to be negotiated. How honest are you about a relationship with a man that's gone on for 50 years and who is not by any means the prime person in the story but actually has been involved so there are questions about um, confidentiality as far as that's concerned but as far as I think that as far as my two mothers are concerned 
the, the real essence of the story is about what should be kept secret and what should be explained and, and told to children because if they don't know, they just make it up and go into some very dark places. Yvonne, thank you very much for your time sharing your story today. It's been a great pleasure, um, uh, Faye. I'm delighted um, to be here. And we spent many happy years living in Bristol. And to be back with you mm. <laughs> is lovely. Thank you. And that was Yvonne Craig speaking there, telling me her story. And if you'd like to read it in its entirety, it's Things My Mother's Never Told Me. And that's been published by Author House. And if you'd like to get in contact with Freelance Bristol Mum, then please do. You can drop me a line at hello at freelancebristolmum.co.uk.